You are listening to Graceway's weekly message podcast. We hope that this message encourages you to know and enjoy God, find friends, discover your purpose, and make a difference in your community. Enjoy the message. Let, us get, let me get us back on the map here. The purpose of the church, don't miss this, is to bring the future kingdom, the kingdom that will one day be when God redeems and restores absolutely everything to himself. The purpose of the church is to bring that future kingdom into the present. When you think to yourself, this is what the kingdom when it comes is going to be like, that is a great way for you to determine your next step. You ought to act as though Jesus is already in charge because in your life and heart, he is. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, where we'll spend the remainder of this year, Jesus introduces the kingdom attributes to not only his disciples, but to those who had come to hear him speak. He does it through what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. And then he goes into the effect of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom is. And then if you do that, it will have this effect, salt and light. This is what it will do. If you're not experiencing, if you're not being salt and light, you're probably not doing this. But if you are doing this, this will be the effect. Over the last couple weeks, Pastor Todd ripped the face off of it. Come on, somebody. Did an incredible job and set up for us this standard of the kingdom. And here's what Jesus does. In order for us to understand the standard of his kingdom, he examines the standard of the time, the assumption of the religious community and the example of the religious leaders, and he lifts them up in a negative way for us to look at. He references their righteousness and said, if you're going to get into my kingdom, you have to have righteousness that is bigger than this. He says, I know you all have heard it this way, but I'm here to tell you it's actually this way. Now, this is interesting because Jesus again and again and again does things that make him seem like nobody that we've ever met. Again and again, Jesus highlights not how normal and common he is, but how distinct and bizarre he is. Jesus says, all y'all church people have heard it this way, but let me tell you, that's not the way that it is. This should concern us. This, this should concern us as individuals who are at church at a 12 o'clock kickoff day. You know, we assume that Jesus isn't with the irreligious, right? Jesus isn't with the secular, obviously, right? They don't like Jesus, and Jesus doesn't like them. And even though that last sentence isn't true, we make some assumptions that Jesus isn't with them. And here's what Jesus is saying. I'm not with the irreligious, but I'm also not with the religious. I'm not with the person who comes to me with his external righteousness and says, look at what I've done. That's not my crowd. That's not my tribe. That's not my people. You've heard it said that way. That's not who I am. And this is an important thing for us to help us to discern the times and the seasons that we're living in. So let me just say a couple of things to you. Not everybody who speaks for God is speaking for God. Not everyone who claims to be doing what God wants is doing what God wants. Following Jesus, don't miss this, is going to make you an outsider with everyone. Jesus was an outsider. Jesus is the creator, came to his creation, came into his own, and his own didn't receive him. You should not expect to be an insider with the irreligious or the religious if you're going to be 
an insider with Jesus. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, people are going to look at you and say, you're a weirdo. And if you aren't okay with that, you're going to be prone to drift into one of the communities that Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not with them. Jesus is saying that his kingdom requires us to be more righteous than anyone that we've ever met. Jesus is saying, let me give you the most righteous people that you know, the scribes and the Pharisees. If you're going to be a part of my kingdom, you have to be more righteous than them. This would have been completely overwhelming if you thought about it quantitatively, but Jesus isn't speaking quantitatively, more righteous, more good deeds. He's speaking about it qualitatively. The religious ideas, the religious leaders promoted an aesthetic righteousness. Righteousness looks a certain way, sort of like this. See that? That's what righteousness looks like. Yeah, righteousness looks put together. Righteousness dresses a certain way, acts a certain way, talks a certain way, votes a certain way, hangs out with certain kinds of people. Righteousness in this time was skin deep. And Jesus says, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, you need a, you need a righteousness that is more, and by more, he means deeper. Not just on the skin, not just on the blazer, not just on the pocket square, not just in the voting booth. No, down to your desires and motives and ideas and thoughts and into your heart. You need a righteousness that is internal first and moves external because the opposite isn't true. External doesn't move in, but internal moves out. Jesus is saying that his followers have a true righteousness that is sincere, that is authentic, that is heart-centered, that begins internally and moves externally, and that exists even when it is anonymous. See, this is the concern about righteousness that is skin deep. It is at its best when it assumes people are watching. I'm the most righteous when? Well, Sunday morning. I love God the most on Sunday morning. Now, don't try to catch me on Tuesday afternoon. You know what I'm saying? Tuesday afternoon, some of that skin righteousness has rubbed off. And Jesus says, I'm looking for followers who want a righteousness that permeates their entire life. He then gives six examples of the most egregiously externally focused teachings of the day. Jesus didn't just randomly take these topics and say, let's start with anger. No, these were things that had a common teaching and a common understanding that was externally based. And Jesus is going to set it up and say, let's think about this for a second. He starts with anger. Pastor Todd unpacked this. He goes to lust. Then he's going to talk today about divorce and oaths. And then he's going to talk about revenge and loving their enemies. The order is interesting, isn't it? Jesus begins with anger and lust and immediately follows it up with divorce. Now, why would he do that? I will just tell you, having been a pastor for about a quarter of a century, that 99.9% .9 of divorces that I have bumped into have their foundational source in anger and lust. Yeah. Most of the time when folks' marriage falls apart, it's because somebody has an anger problem and somebody has a lust problem, and we get to irreconcilable differences when we're actually struggling with heart issues. 
And so Jesus is going to unpack two difficult topics today, all right? He's going to talk to us about divorce, and I want to say to you from jump, we've got a lot of it wrong, and we've got a little of it right. We've got a lot of it wrong, we've got a little of it right, and then he's going to talk to us about our oaths, about our word, about keeping our word. Let's look at it in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31. It has also been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it has been said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord that which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black or grow, apparently, Tim. <laughs> Let what you say be simply, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay, so let's take a step back from this, all right? It's important for us to remember the context in which Jesus presents the topic of divorce. Nobody in the church claims no second chances, no forgiveness, you are shelved, God is done with you for the angry or lustful. Just one paragraph, one verse earlier, Jesus has talked about the angry and the lustful. We assume that Jesus' teaching is an intentional overstatement is metaphoric in nature. If we did not, there would be a lot of one-eyed men walking around in the church. There'd be a lot of one-handed women walking around in the church. We look at it and we say, Jesus is trying to make a point about anger and about lust. He's not being literal. But when we come to divorce for some reason, when the topic becomes the failure of a marriage, we get dead literal. And we ignore the context. And when we ignore the context of which Jesus is speaking, we leave divorced people to assume that they are shelled by God's plans and purposes for the rest of their life. We leave people to assume, oh, you're divorced? Oh, you get a red A and you sit over there with all the other divorced people. Now all you angry and lustful people with two eyes and two hands, let's go do what God wants us to do. How much sense does that make? How much sense does that make? Jesus primarily isn't primarily teaching about the subject of divorce. He is comparing the way that the religious righteousness of the Pharisees chose to teach divorce. He takes the six topics, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, revenge, loving your enemies, and he lifts them up to turn them on their head. He lifts them up to push us past the external and into the heart. It's also important for us to remember, guys, that when Jesus is speaking, when Jesus is teaching, his tone is always gentle and kind to everyone except the self-righteous. The only individuals that Jesus seems to berate and condescend to are the folks who assume that they're right. The folks who come to God and say, I'm broken, always find gentleness and kindness from Jesus. I have three griefs around divorce. My first grief is for the effect of divorce 
on everyone who's involved. Tim Keller says divorce isn't like taking off your clothes, it's like taking off your arm. It's an amputation. Because the Bible says that when you get married, you become one flesh. And you can't untangle that with litigation. That's not how it works. Even if you're glad to not be married to that person anymore, you probably grieve the effect of the divorce on their life and your life, and if you had kids, their lives. The Bible says rightly that God hates divorce. God hates divorce, not for the reasons that you and I tend to assume. God hates divorce because divorce is, divorce is violent. Divorce is destructive. Divorce is awful. Divorce is, is difficult. No matter the reason, no matter who did it, no matter why it happened, no matter what the circumstances are. And I think that it's important for us in the church to start from a position of grief, not from a position of theology. Because when we start from a position of doctrine, we forget that we're talking to people. People that God loves recklessly. People whose God, God's goodness is chasing after. People who God still has great things planned for. My second grief is, is for the flippancy that I experience around divorce. Let's just get a divorce. Whoa, 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 what? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, just not work. it's just not working out. Let's just be done. Let's, listen, I want you to be happy. I want to be happy. Let's just be done. It's the equivalent to saying to your leg, you know, <laughs> I thought this was going to go different. You know, I thought you were going to be shaped different. I thought you were going to work different. I thought, I thought in the morning this part of my leg wasn't going to be sore and grumpy with me. I thought when I put these shoes on you were going to look better. Let's just be done. And going to the doc and saying, doc, cut my leg off. Why? Just irreconcilable differences, man. <laughs> That's the theological equivalent to a marriage. To go from one flesh to not really two fleshes, but one flesh displaced from one another. To look at that flippantly and not understand how brutally violent it's going to be on your soul and on your family and on your sense of well-being and worth and on your future. We have to stop being flippant about it, don't we? And then thirdly, I grieve about the graceless, condescending, weaponizing of scriptural texts by the church without the benefit of context or good exegetical work that compounds the hurt of divorce by distancing divorced people from the faith community. Listen, at the time that somebody experiences we don't go tell them to stand in the corner. We bring them in. We get our arms around them. But for too long, the church in America has been reading these texts with American eyes. Jesus wasn't American. Let it sink in. <laughs> Jesus wasn't a white cow with blonde hair and blue eyes. I know what you see at Hobby Lobby. Let it sink in. <laughs> he was a Middle Easterner. Talking to Middle Easterners, we just had a team get back from the Middle East, and I will tell you that all of them say that it was like going to a different planet. Listen, it can't be true for you if it wasn't true for them. And I'm tired of watching, watching the church 
use God's gracious good news of the gospel and turning it into a hammer for broken people. We got to stop doing that. Marriage is serious and God hates it. Yes, being flippant about marriage is sinful and broken and carnal and, and is destroying the social fabric of our culture. All of those things are true. And where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Grace does much more abound. Listen, if you are here and you're married, listen to me very carefully, please. I don't want you to get divorced. The vast majority of us have no biblical basis for getting divorced. You don't. The Bible is abundantly clear. And most of us are not experiencing it. And even the rationale that would allow you get, to get divorced is not a command to get divorced. If you're in here and you're married, my hope, my prayer, my desire for you is that you would, until death do you part... Spend your life with that person who you love most days. <laughs> now don't be talking to me about Tuesday. Don't be talking to me about when the game's on. Don't be talking to me about the chores. You know what I'm saying? Most days. <laughs> the vast majority of you do not have God-honoring, biblically-centered reasons for getting divorced. But if you've been divorced, and hear me with the emphasis that I just said, don't get divorced. If you have been divorced, listen to me, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 and verse 1. Whatever your reasons were for getting divorced, right or wrong, biblical or unbiblical, whether you're glad you did it or you deeply regret that it happened, you are loved by God. And there is more than enough forgiveness and freedom in Jesus for you and for me. And I need it just as much as you do, even though I haven't been divorced. Come on, let's be honest with one another, friends. Let's be honest with one another, friends. So let's talk about divorce. Jesus is going to unpack for us three categories of divorce. Divorce under the law, divorce by the Pharisees, and then divorce by Jesus. Are you still with me? Divorce under the law. It was abundantly clear in the Old Testament throughout Scripture that marriage is intended to be a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. That's a biblical definition of marriage, not just between a man and a woman, which is what the argument is right now. We've turned it into a gender thing. It's, it's three things, a man and a woman for a life. That's a biblical marriage. At the same time, divorce was assumed under the law. It was not commanded, but it was assumed. Matthew 19 and verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he, that being Jesus, said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Divorce was not God's original plan, but God made allowance for it. Why? Because this world is broken and so are you. Divorce in Scripture was provided to protect predominantly the women, to protect 
predominantly the women. If a woman was put out of her family's home, if she was divorced by her husband, it was incredibly difficult for her to survive. And I don't mean to flourish, I mean to live. If you've read the book of Ruth, you know that. Whenever Ruth comes back as a widow with Naomi, she is, she's an outcast, she's a beggar, she needs somebody to care for her. Without the moorings of a family, a woman was, was in a bad, bad, bad way. And so in order to protect against frivolous divorce, a bill of divorce had to be presented. A document had to be presented. Now initially, the only acceptable rationale for divorce was what was called indecency. And the idea behind indecency was that you had gone out on your spouse. And I don't mean to QT, if you know what I'm saying. That you had slept with somebody who was not your spouse. But over time, to avoid false accusations of adultery, which don't miss this, brought with it capital punishment. Now think about this for a second. If somebody were accused and found guilty of committing adultery, they didn't get a divorce, they got stoned. And I don't mean at 420. <laughs> they got killed. And so watch what's happening. Jesus says, y'all, I didn't want y'all to be getting divorced to begin with, but you kept getting divorced, so Moses made an allowance and said, I need a certificate of divorce. And then, men, we were going around saying, oh, yeah, she cheated on me, and women were getting stoned whether or not they had actually committed adultery. And so over time, the bill of divorcement evolved into you had to give the reason for divorce, and don't miss this, you had to give her permission to get remarried. And so whenever somebody would come and start to stone the woman, she'd go, oh, oh, oh. no, 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 no. This is the reason, and he gave me permission to. And it was to protect her, protect her from those who would frivolously accuse her and use the law as a weapon against her. It happened then, it happens now. Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because some indecency has been found in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from her house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her to a house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be her wife, then her former husband, here's the don't remarry part. You don't get to go back to the first guy. Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for this is an abomination to the Lord. And you shall not bring this sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So, so Jesus teaches us divorce was never the plan, but the world is broken. So give a Give a certificate of divorce, but then that was abused. So then give a certificate of divorce, state the reason that you're doing the divorce, and give the woman permission to get remarried. Okay, now by the time Jesus comes along, the Pharisees had taken this certificate of divorcement and made it the thing. They had said the point of divorce is the paperwork. As though God is the heavenly IRS when it comes to marriage. Oh, I'm sorry, on page 364, uh, you misspelled um, subtle. No, that's not, 
That's not how, that's not how God intended it to be, but the Pharisees had turned it into a, watch this, an external document. And, ironically enough, the Pharisees had also turned divorce into an overtly male-oriented decision. So listen to this. A woman was not permitted to divorce her husband. She could petition the court, and if her plea was accepted, the court would go and tell the husband to divorce her. The husband's right, on the other hand, was regarded as inalienable. The only question was the reason that he wanted to be divorced. Let's take a step back. So two major rabbinic houses during the time of Jesus, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. The school of Shammai was the conservative house, and they taught that indecency in Deuteronomy 24 was actually adultery, just as Scripture indicates. The school of Hillel was the more progressive house, and they allowed for a much wider interpretation. For example, a man could divorce his wife if she was an indecent cook. You burned my wings during the game. You got to go. <laughs> I'm not going to stand for this. Or, and this is, I'm not making this up. Or if she had indecent morning breath. Some of y'all, I'm talking to you at 11, and you still have indecent breath. <laughs> Coffee, then some gum, all right? Coffee, gum. Coffee, gum. I'm trying to help you today. All right. Which, which side do you think the majority of the culture sided with? Hillel. Yeah, because fellas... You're telling me I can have my cake and eat it too? It's crazy. There was a, another rabbi, Akiba, who said that the indecency could be described as simply finding someone else more fair. Whew. So watch. Jesus says, this is never supposed to be this way, but because the world is broken, we'll make an allowance, but it has to be adultery. That gets falsely accused. So now you have to say the reason and see if she can get remarried. When Jesus comes along, the document becomes the thing, and the document services one side of the one flesh. So Jesus shows up, and Jesus does two things. Number one, Jesus exposes the moving fence of the human heart. Jesus is saying, guys, if you were really a part of the kingdom of God, we wouldn't need this legislation. We wouldn't need all these rules. I wouldn't need to organize unrighteousness by rules because your righteousness would be internal, not external. You see, whenever a church or a community starts having to say what all the rules are, you're already lost. You're already lost. Women, you can't, you can't wear that. Fellas, I need you. Your hair can't be that. Like, you can't. You, da, 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 da. No, I don't know. We're already off the gospel. We're already talking about a different thing. And so Jesus shows up, and he's saying, guys, we're, we're profoundly lost. External righteousness regularly moves, doesn't it? Watch. Um, we have cars. At first, cars go 12 miles an hour. No major speed limit, right? And then cars get a little bit more, and okay, now, now, now you can go 
55 miles an hour. Oh, this is awesome. I can go 55 miles an hour. Well, 55 with like a 5 to 8 over the speed limit category, right? Yeah, like 5, you're fine, 9, you're mine kind of deal if you're a cop. <laughs> so it's like 55 or 64. Yeah, sure. Okay. And then the speed limit goes to 65 or 70 or in some places 75. Well, like, or like 80, 82. Okay, so I can go 83 while I'm texting. No, 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 not while you're texting. Well, like if you're at a stop sign while you're you know, You know what? Forget it. And Missouri just did this. You can't look at your phone while you're driving. Wait, wait. Back here, we were going 12 miles an hour. Okay, Jesus says the same thing. Divorce, church folks, internal righteousness. Divorce is not good. It's not pleasing to God. Folks keep wanting to get divorced. So Moses says, fine. But I need you to give a certificate of divorce. And then people are lying about the certificate of divorce. Okay. <sighs> All right. Um, you have to say the reason. You have to give her permission to go. Uh, and then it's about the document. And indecency is she burned my eggs in the morning. What? You do the same thing, right? The beginning of the year. I'm going to read through my Bible this year. This, you know what? This month, during 21 days of prayer. And then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, I'm on the seven-year plan. <laughs> this, is the, this is the day I'm going I'm to treat my wife with respect and kindness. And then she talks during the game. Tomorrow is the day. <laughs> Tomorrow. This is the day where I'm going I'm to be respectful to my husband. And then you come in, and the dishes are a mess, and the trash hasn't been taken. You know what? Forget it. Yeah, why? External righteousness moves. It moves. Jesus is pushing the issue of divorce, watch, back to the heart of the person seeking divorce, which was the fellas. And listen to what he says. The adultery claim is tied to the consequence of adultery. So here's what he's saying, if I could say it this way. Fellas, I know that you don't like her as much as you used to. I get it. Are you willing for her to be stoned for that? Are you willing for her to be an outcast for that? Are you willing for her to not be taken care of by anyone for the rest of her life? For burning your eggs? What's he doing? He's drawing out the heart of the man. Because if the man says, yeah, I'm good with that, then everyone goes, you are a terrible person. And Jesus is like, yeah. If you can't stop lusting, tear your eye out so that everyone knows you got a lust problem. If you're willing to put your wife on the street or allow her to be stoned, what kind of man are you? That's what Jesus is saying. If the answer is yes, what's up with your heart? That's Jesus' point. Jesus isn't talking about the rules of divorce. Jesus isn't talking about these are the old rules, but here's the new rules. Jesus is saying, I'm all about, I don't care about your document or your speed limit or your Bible reading plan. I care about this. And if I have this, then I don't have to give you a list of rules. But let's just have a conversation about this. And then he goes immediately into oaths. Okay, again, meaning same topic. You have heard it said, 
to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God, for it is the earth, the, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let, you, uh, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Okay, so oaths under the law. Don't miss this. Deuteronomy 23, be careful that you do what has passed through your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Okay, if you tell God you're going to do something, what? Do it. Over time, the Hebrews develop a hierarchy of O's. Okay? Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, their head, God himself. Okay, you do the same thing. I swear on my mama. I swear on the lives of my children. I swear based on all the money that I make for the rest of my life. I swear on my life. Right? Same thing. Jesus, or it, by the time the Pharisees come along, they begin to say, nope, the only oath that matters is if you say, I swear to God. They hold that unless the name of God is specifically mentioned, an oath was not binding. There's all these lengthy discussions and litigation about which oaths are binding, whether or not swearing by heaven was enough, swearing by earth is enough, and there are times in Jesus' day where oaths get broken because the person says, no, 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 I didn't swear to God. Do you remember when you were a kid and you would cross your fingers behind your back? <laughs> oh, ah, 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 sorry. I remember a conversation that I had with a kid friend of mine. I don't know why I remember this, but I remember uh, he, he uh, I said something to him and he's like, let me see your hands. I'm like this. And he's like, okay, fine. And I took it and I said, ah, my toes were crossed. Yeah. So then we were down to show me your hands, show me your feet, stand with your legs apart, put your hands out, because this is what external righteousness does. Lots of folks walking around like this. Are you with me? Here's how you know I'm telling the truth. <laughs> Meaning that integrity is about your body posture or rhetoric, not about your value of honesty. So Jesus comes along and he says, hey, don't swear by things that aren't yours. You don't get to swear by heaven because that's the throne of God. You don't get to swear by, swear by earth because that's his footstool. You don't get to swear by your head because you didn't pick your hair color. Not the natural one, come on. <laughs> you don't get to swear by God because you don't have any authority over God. Have you ever had somebody, I'll bet you a million dollars. Do you have a million dollars? Well, no. Well, then you can't bet by what you don't have. So what does Jesus say? How about we just stop swearing and tell the truth? Okay. Let's go back to marriage. You want to have a good marriage? Keep your word. You say, which word? I, Tim, take you, Ashley, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold, for richer or poor, for better or worse, come hell and high water, come on somebody, <laughs> come three kids and two miscarriages, come moving all over the Midwest to find a church called Graceway, yes, sir. Yes, sir. till death do us 
part according to God's holy ordinance. And thereto I pledge thee my faith. I, I do. That's your word. Keep your word. I didn't know it really meant this when I was standing in my suit in front of all these people. Well, it did. That's what it meant. Till death do you part. For richer or poor, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, we are. I give you my word. And then, when it doesn't go well, I tell the truth. You say, what does that mean? There's an old counseling trick. I'm going to give you the right answer, okay? Married, marriage, uh, married folks come in. We're not doing good, pastor. Okay, um, let's break this down. What, what percentage is your fault and what percentage is your fault? Okay, this is the question. And then you just kind of sit back and watch. Okay. And they start negotiating. Well, you know, 45. Yeah. And then you did the thing, so. Uh, 73... 27. Okay. Anything other than 100, 100 is the wrong answer. You see, whenever I come to marriage and it's broken, my external righteous mind says, look at everything you're doing wrong. And Jesus is saying, keep your word. What's your word? You said that you would love her for better or worse. And just because she's showing you her worst doesn't mean you get to stop doing what you said you were going to do. Tell the truth. Whose fault is it? It's my fault. Yeah, but you said only 20. No, I was wrong. It's 100% my fault. Can I tell you, I have never had a couple who said 100, 100 who didn't get well very quickly. Couples that come in and say 64, 36, takes a long time because they're still operating in that external righteousness. They still don't want to keep their word. Your word wasn't as long as your faults don't exceed 64%. Your word was. When you do your worst, I'll still be at my best. For how long? <laughs> Till I kill you or you kill me. <laughs> that's for how long baby and I'm not going to swear but my money's on me you want a good marriage keep your word and tell the truth it's your fault no no it's her fault no it's yours and let God tell her it's hers now why Christian why why is this so important Ephesians chapter 5 says that marriage, our marriage is instructed by and exemplified by God's relationship to the church. Okay? So when I look at how God treats the church, I look at how the husband that I'm supposed to be. Here's why. Here's why you keep your word and you keep your wife. Because God keeps his word and God keeps you. That's why. Why should you stay married until death do us part? Because God is faithful to me when I'm not faithful to him. Because God's promises are yes and amen. Because God's promises stand. Because God goes first. And because God keeps his word, watch, he keeps me. The number one command in the Bible is fear not. 
The number one command in the Bible is fear not. Why should I not fear Hebrews 13 and Deuteronomy 31? Because I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Our God is the one who it wasn't his fault, but he takes our fault. Our God is the one who says, when I give you my word, you can bank on it. Our God is the one who says, I'll never leave you. Our God is the one who says, I'll never put you out on the street. Our God is the one who says, I'll always have your back. Our God is the one who says, I'll go first till death do I. His death is what puts us in covenant with. And your death is what keeps you in covenant with. Everybody in this room who's a Christian is kept by God's word, is kept by God's promises, is kept by God's love, and that will never change for all eternity. God, we love you today. And I thank you for the fact that you're an incredible father and an incredible husband. I thank you for the fact that you love me first, that I can trust your word. I thank you for the fact that I don't have to be afraid that you're going to abandon me or abuse me or cheat on me or put me out. I thank you for the fact that you'll never leave me and never forsake me because that's who you are. You're a recklessly loving God who chases us with good things. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.